Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, when we grow in the knowledge of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. One of our online viewers, Mark Cox, who's a Navy chaplain in Hawaii, found this quote from one of the founders of our church out of uh, Review and Herald, April 15, 1890, related to last week's lesson about the Sabbath that we talked about last week. And I thought it was very good. I wanted to share it. It says, Satan is ever seeking to bring about the state of things in which righteousness may be termed unrighteousness and unrighteousness righteousness. Now, I just had to, as, as you think about that, can you just... Think of some examples of that popped into my mind. Well, yes, the design law seen as unimportant and pose rules are seen as, as righteous. Reasoning for truth is seen as a lack of faith, whereas believing without evidence is seen to be, to, to be righteous. Just believe because God said it. Um, where pe- leaving people free is seen as promoting wickedness while making laws to coerce conscience, conscience is seen as righteous. He's got it completely flipped backwards. Okay, keeping on with the quote. Uh, what are we to do? We are to keep in living connection with the God of heaven, ranking in his army and under the banner, and we cannot afford to be in such gross blindness that we cannot discern truth from error. I just love that. We can't, can't be non-thinking. We want to know what is, what is truth. God is going to bring around the condition of things where the good men and the men in authority will have an opportunity to know what is truth. Indeed, there will be oppression and an attempt to compel conscience. Notice the dynamic. There's going to come a time when, when, when coercive pressure will be brought to bear. But those who have known the truth will be afraid to yield to the power of darkness. Christ said of his people, you're the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hid. We are to stand the trial and test of persecution because of allegiance to the truth. Not a move has been made in exalting the idle Sabbath in bringing around, notice the the, the language here, Sunday observance through legislation. Nothing wrong with going to church on Sunday. Sunday observance through legislation. But Satan has been behind it and has been the chief worker. But the conscience should not be compelled even for the observance of the genuine Sabbath. For God will accept only willing service. This is what we talked about last week. If you begin using coercive pressure, the, remember we talked to the sim- symbols of the days represent methodologies. Sabbath, design law, creator, uh, principles of truth, presented in love, leaving people free. Sunday, a legislated rule, coercive pressure being brought to bear. That is the real problem, not the actual day, but what it represents in the methods one's hold. So using coercive pressure to force people to observe the Bible Sabbath is not to be done. And then Dan Wyatt, one of our online listeners and a friend who gave me a plane ride when I was in uh, California to help shorten my trip, uh, sent this quote from Thought Amount of Blessing, page 50. Those principles that were made known to man in paradise as the great law of life will exist unchanged in paradise restored. When Eden shall bloom again on earth, God's law of love will be obeyed by all beneath the sun. You see, it's those principles, the principles of the law of life that we talk about in here. It's design protocol. All righty, with that in mind, let's go on to our lesson, Death and Resurrection, which is lesson 12 in the quarterly, The Teachings of Jesus. And the memory text out of John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And as I looked at this lesson, I thought, as, uh, as a psychiatrist and what I do, this issue of death Dying. It's one of the existential issues, the issues of our existence. There's whole, uh, there's whole theories, uh, discussing about the fear of death and dying and, and what it means. And in my practice, this question is so confused by so many people. And then when I go out and talk around the world to Christian groups, this question, 
is so confused within any denominational group. So I listed a bunch of questions. I'm going to run through these, and then we'll go back and work through some answers. Here's some questions about this. What is death? If one dies, are they still alive? When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, does that mean continued life or cessation of life? When God says in the day you eat, you will die, does that mean cessation of life or continued living in an altered state? When Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we may have everlasting life and not perish, does that mean die or does that mean living for eternity and suffering? When Jesus said to those who believe in, that said those who believe in him will never die, what does that mean? Do human beings possess immortality? Or are human beings created as immortal beings? What about the Bible passages that say the dead are sleeping? Are they dead or are they sleeping? What about the places where it says God killed people? Did he kill them? Or did he put them to sleep? Or what difference does it make? What actually causes death? Does death come from God or does death come from sin? Is there a difference between first death and second death? Which death is the wages of sin? If first death is the wages of sin and Christ died to pay the wages of sin for the righteous, then why do the righteous die the first death? Why is there first death at all? Is first death a punishment from God? Is second death a punishment from God? Why does second death happen? What makes up a person, the constituent components of a person? What happens to a person, the individual, at first death? What happens to the person, the individual, at second death? What is the purpose of raising the wicked at the end of the thousand years if they're only to die again? Who causes the death of the wicked at the end of the thousand years? What about Jesus' death? What death did he die? Some say second death. Did Jesus die the death that's the same as the wicked die in the end? Or was his death, just like his life, unique? Did you have any other questions you want to add to the list? Because understanding these questions, I mean, there's, there's really good, cohesive understanding where it all fits. It makes it sensible. Let's go through them. What is death? In the Bible, the word death is used actually for three different states. Three different states. The state of being out of relationship with God, dead in your trespass and sin. That's Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 2.13. It's also used for the state when our physical bodies cease to function, but for which a resurrection occurs, what some call first death, John 11.25, in our memory text for the day. And then there's the state of eternal non-existence in which the body and every other aspect of the person no longer exists, what some call second death. So one of the reasons confusion on this topic occurs is because the the word death is used for three different states. And we have to, as we're discussing this, understand which state are we talking about in any given time. If one dies, are they still alive? Do you understand? This is a common teaching. Most Christians believe that when you die, you're actually still alive. Just in an altered state. Well, go back to the three states. If one dies, you're still alive. It depends on which of the deaths you're referring to. Those dead in trespass and sin are still capable, are they not, of accepting Jesus as their Savior and entering into eternal life. 
That's what Paul refers to in those texts. Go read those texts. When you were dead in your trespass and sin, Christ died for you, and now you are no... You follow what I'm saying? Okay, so if you're talking about that first state of being dead in trespass and sin, well, yes, they're not actually ceasing to function. Their bodies are still working. Their individualities are still in existence, but having not accepted the remedy, they remain terminal. It would be like somebody, metaphorically, if somebody's had a, a toxic radiation exposure, and maybe you've seen this depicted in some movies or something or heard about it in the news, they might be alive for a little while, but it's like walking dead man. You see, he's just a matter of time. He's going to die now. Nothing we can do to save him. And this is what it means to be unreconciled to God. We may have life for, uh, we may be alive for a little time, but we don't actually possess life. Those who have died the first death, are they still alive? Well, their existence is still in existence. I mean, they still exist. Their identity is still in existence, but, uh, and they're going to rise again. Thus, they are not eternally dead. They are not gone from uh, eternal history. No one has yet died eternally. But those in the future who die at the end of the thousand years will die a death from which there is no resurrection and from which their identity and individuality no longer exists. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, does it mean continued life or cessation of life? Continued life or cessation of life? The wages of sin, death. Cessation of life. This is the cessation of all life, individuality, all existence. This is uh, uh, the wages of sin, death, is the death that occurs when one is not reconciled to God and when one is completely severed and disconnected from him. When God said, in the day you eat, you will die, does that mean cessation of life or continued life in an altered state? Same thing. It, it, it means, he was basically saying that it means ultimately eternal non-existence in the day you eat. God was saying you will choose to deviate from the way I've designed life to operate. You will sever yourself from me who is the source of life. And out there, disconnected from me, deviant from the way life is constructed, there is no life. You will cease to exist unless I, the creator designer, do something to intervene in what would happen to put you back in harmony and restore you to life. When Jesus said that God's will of the world, and he gives only begotten sons, whoever believes in him won't perish, again, what does that mean? And I, I hit this because it's, it's, you know, the Bible's pretty plain on this, that something about sin, unremedied, unresolved in the life of the sinner, results in this death, this perishing. But much of Christianity teaches it results not in death, it results in eternal life in some altered, miserable state. When Jesus said that those who believe in him will never die, those who believe in him will never die, what does that mean? And, and did he say those words? You'll never die if you believe in me. That they would exist forever. Their existence, their individuality would never be destroyed. But their bodies may cease functioning and they may enter an intermediate state, a state of suspended animation, if you will, in which their individualities exist but are not actively operating, thus are suspended in time. The individualities of people in this state are safe and secure with Christ in heaven. And this is a point of contention amongst different denominational groups, particularly Adventists and non-Adventists, because at death, many non-Adventists will teach that the Spirit has gone to heaven and is safe with Christ in heaven, and many Adventists teach your dead one is in the grave, waiting for the resurrection. Yes? 
But here's what Ellen White wrote in Six Bible Commentary 1093. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God, there to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality of features, so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. God shall give the righteous dead a body that will please him. Yes, way in the back. Online viewer asks, if the truth is that there is no hell and no one ceases to exist, then proposing a condition where one will cease to exist produces fear. What if the teaching that people's individuality will be destroyed is also false? Well, uh, we'll go through the evidence, and it's, you know, it's like saying, what if um, there is no air for us to breathe? A what-if question not based on reality is a meaningless question. So we need to go through the evidence and see what the evidence tells us about that. And that's what we're going to do through this lesson. Uh, it, it builds on these, as these questions. I'm going to give more and more evidences about it. Do human beings possess immortality? Yes, they possess immorality, if you leave the, D, the T out. But uh, do they p- p- possess... Ever make that typo when you're typing? <laughs> God alone is immortal, but you left the T out? No, don't leave the T out. Okay? Yes, Im- immortality. Do, do humans possess this? This is an assumption that leads to much misunderstanding that in creation, in Eden, God created humanity and gave them at that time immortality in Eden, some part of them that can never die. And this is a terrible indictment of God to teach this. It teaches very bad things about God. For instance, if it is true that he gave them immortality, it either teaches that God is a sadist, because if you believe that God has foreknowledge and he knew that they were going to rebel, then he gave them immortality anyway. Then he knew and he created beings that were going to suffer for all eternity. And what kind of a being would do that? Or it teaches that he's fairly inept and naive because he actually doesn't know the future. And it's caught him all completely by surprise. And, oh, my goodness, I never intended for this to happen. Who, who knew? Who knew? You see? And, uh, and, and, and you've got him there wondering. And he's, and he's not really this omnipotent and omniscient God that we, that we love and trust. So it te- says terrible things about God to present this idea that we have inherent immortality. Also, it contradicts scripture, which says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God alone is immortal, or uh, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so it's contradictory to scripture as well. And it doesn't even make sense with things like in Genesis. After they sinned, they put an angel to bar the way to the tree of life. What sense does that make if they already have eternal life? Why do they need to have the tree, well, way to the tree barred? It makes no sense. Okay, so this idea, but it's an accepted idea. And this is why many people go down this trail of eternal separation and suffering from God because they accept a premise without even looking at the premise that we have some immortal state that we can never die. What about the Bible passages that say the dead are sleeping? Are they dead or are they sleeping? Matthew nine twenty three to 26, Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd. And he said, go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went and took the girl by the hand and told her to get up and so forth and so on. 
And then in Luke 8, 51 to 56, we go into another uh, uh, same account, account of the same event. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing she was dead. But he took her hand and said, my child, get up. Why did they laugh at him? Why did they laugh? I mean, this is very, these, these stories are powerful. They're giving you the human reaction. If you went into a, uh, a hospital today where someone was in coma, and the, you could see the EKG was going, and they had a pulse, they were breathing, but they're unconscious, and you said, they're, they're not dead, they're just asleep, would people laugh? No. They don't laugh in that situation. They laughed, and their laughter is, is an indictment or, or acknowledgement that to the worldly standard, this girl was dead. She wasn't sleeping. She wasn't in a coma. From the worldly standard, she was dead. If she was dead, why did Jesus say she's asleep? Was Jesus trying to mislead them? Was he trying to c- cause confusion? Was he trying to obscure reality? Or was Jesus being the light that lightens all men? He was trying to enlighten. He was trying to lead their minds to a higher and more accurate understanding of reality. And that reality is what we call death. God does not call death. What we call death is not the wages of sin. And this has huge implications for understanding so much of Scripture. I'm going to walk you through because there's much misunderstanding in our church about God's action in the Old Testament because people get confused on this point. Because when you understand that this is an intermediary state, a state in which people are in a state of suspended animation, if you will. The body has ceased functioning. Individuality is safe and secure with Christ in heaven, as we just read. They have not ceased to exist. They've only ceased operations. This is not death. Death, according to the way uh, of Scripture, the wage of sin, is eternal non-existence in which not only is the body gone, but individuality and identity are gone from all history as well. There's no existence left. Therefore, if you understand this, in Old Testament times, God has never killed anyone. But he has put people in the grave. He has caused cessation of the bodily functions. But their individualities are still intact. Their identities still exist, waiting to come forth in one of two resurrections. The implications are quite, quite profound. We're gonna, and we'll bring, bring those through in a couple of more questions as we answer them. What about the places where it said God killed people? Did he kill them or did he put them to sleep? Well, I've suggested that he didn't kill as far as wipe out their individuality, identity, and eternal existence. He suspended their bodily operations, and they will come forth again. Some have gone to extremes, though, to make the case that all places in the Old Testament where the Bible says that God killed was actually something else going on and just attributed to God. This happens because the Bible couple of reasons this happens. One, the Bible actually does attribute to God things that he actually himself didn't do, so it makes a precedent that can be then used in this way. And I'll give you some examples of that. First Chronicles 10, 4 and 14, it, it talks in this, uh, this is the account of Saul, and it asks his armor bearer to run him through after he lost the battle, and he wouldn't do it, and it says Saul fell on a sword in verse 4, and you just read down the same chapter down to verse 14, and it says, therefore God put him to death. And so it's very clear that he committed suicide, but in this account, um, it also describes as God doing what he permitted. So one of these elements is when a human being takes their own life, it can be attributed sometimes to God actively doing it. Another account is Satan and his angels acting to uh, kill 
and being attributed to God. This would have been fire fell in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, it says the fire of God fell, and we know because we have the behind-the-scenes accounting in that book that it wasn't God acting. God just removed a hand of protection and gave Satan some some latitude there. Or evil people under the influence of satanic um, uh, influence kill. This would be again in the book of Job, the Sabaeans who came and killed off uh, the attendants of Job, and then it was attributed again to God. But there are also times in Scripture where God acts to put people in the grave. Yet some people will try to make this out to be Satan and deny God is doing it because of the examples cited above and because they want to put their desire, their goal, their, their heart, passion is to put God in a good light. They want God to be seen as a God of love and mercy. They don't want people to be afraid of God. And so they, they want to make this case that, that, that God is never the one actively putting people in the grave. A classic example would be the firstborn of Egypt. And then if you read the accounts in the firstborn of Egypt, it actually describes the angel as the destroyer coming. You put blood over the destroyer, will not touch his house. And then they make the case from Scripture and other places that Satan is the destroyer, so this must have been Satan coming to do it and so forth. But the problem has several errors in thinking to draw this conclusion. First, if you remember our uh, levels of moral hierarchy and levels of decision-making, these people are operating generally at level six. And level six thinking is principle-based thinking. And the principles of, of life are that life comes from God and, and life is giving and you can't coerce love, love can't be coerced. And so based on the principles, they say, therefore, God can't be doing this. So God steps back and death comes either because God lets go and they don't live or because God lets go and Satan comes and uses his power to kill. But several factors, uh, errors, errors of fact, actual errors of fact, uh, drive this. One, the assumption that first death is a punishment for sin and failure to see what first death actually really is in the context of the great controversy. And my belief is that first death is actually an, an intermediary, intermediary state that exists only because of God's grace and mercy. If God would have allowed the events to transpire that would have happened in Eden had Jesus not stepped in the gap, there would be no first death experience. There would only be eternal non-existence. That's the result of sin. This first death experience is a mercy to reduce suffering on both the righteous and the wicked while the plan of salvation is being wrought out. It's an artificial state that doesn't happen as a natural result of unremedied sin. It's an act of grace as God sustains and holds at bay what sin actually does to, to, to sinners. In Isaiah 57, the righteous perish and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that's exactly right. And if you just stop and think about that, think about righteous people who have sickness and illness on this earth and how maybe you've seen a loved one with, with late-stage Alzheimer's disease or, or metastatic cancer, and, and you would love to see them eternally healed, but before the second coming, what's the most gracious and merciful thing? That they rest and they stop suffering. It's a, it's a mercy. Conversely, the wicked. Isn't it a mercy? both to the wicked themselves and to the rest of the world, that people like Adolf Hitler and Stalin don't continue to live. That they have this state. And we're going to come to, in a moment, we're going to walk through when they come back and what that means. 
So one is this idea that first death is somehow a punishment for sin, and therefore God isn't the source of inflicting punishment, therefore God can't be punishing sin, therefore God didn't put them in the grave at the first death. It misses the whole point, number one. Number two, because it, it thinks first death is a punishment rather than an act of mercy. Number two, it misses the level seven decision-making level of moral development, which is not only understanding the principles of God, but understanding the purposes in the landscape of the great controversy and what God is trying to achieve. In the setting of Egypt, if you remember, every one of the plagues of Egypt was for a purpose. And what was the purpose? What was the purpose? Every plague. Contrast with a false God. To expose the gods of Egypt as being false. That was its purpose. Now, what happens if in this particular case, the God, uh, um, was it Horus? Was that the God over the, over the grave? Was it Horus or was it, can't remember which one, but the God of, the God of Egypt that, that governs life and death, if God actually steps back and now lets Satan be the one to take, what happens here? It's validated. The false gods of Egypt actually have power. They're the ones doing it. So they get, they get sustained. Number one. Number two, who was the one who told Pharaoh, that the firstborn would die. Who's the one who told him that? Moses, Moses representing who? God. So think this through. God really, really is counting on Satan now, isn't he? Moses has told him. He said, hey, I've got to, we're going to wipe up the firstborn. And God picks up the phone and says, Satan, I'm really counting on you. You could make me look really bad if you don't kill him. So please go kill those guys for me and make me look good. There's serious problems here. If we take God out of the role, it, and, and the reason they do it, though, is, is they want to make God look good, and they're looking at the principles, and just principles alone, out of context of setting, and purpose, and misunderstanding first death leads to this false conclusion. Yes? Anubis. Anubis. Okay, the God Anubis, God of death. Thanks. Okay. And all of those who died the firstborn, why did they die? Because they were wicked, or because they were firstborn? And so they died to expose the false God, not to punish the firstborn. Notice that. And they will come up in one of two resurrections. Then why not kill Pharaoh? Why kill an innocent child? The child is not guilty of anything, but Pharaoh is the one that's guilty, so why not kill Pharaoh instead of the innocent kids? That wasn't the goal, was it? But I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, you, you know, which when you say kill, do you mean put to sleep? Yes, yes. And from God's perspective, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So, and if you really try to think in this context, I, I, people, we struggle in our finite mind. But imagine we had a, a, uh, a rope that stretched from our earth to the sun, 93 million miles long. And every mil- millimeter on that rope represents a year of life. Every millimeter, one year. And this is just a 90, it's still a finite rope. It's not an infinite rope. Remember, God designed life and humans to live infinitely, never to die. But we're just going 93 million because our mind can't go infinity. So 93 million. Every millimeter is a year of life. Is there a, a significant difference between 969 millimeters or 9 millimeters on a 93 million mile long rope? No. Get your mind from God's perspective. It really doesn't matter whether it's 6 millimeters or 969 millimeters. We all die young. We all go into the grave young. We were never designed to go in the grave. What matters, though, have we partaken the remedy, been restored so that we are in the state that Christ said, if you believe in me, you will never die because your existence is safe and secure for all eternity. You may enter a state in which your body ceases to operate for a while, but you're coming back for all eternity with me. That's the key. And this is what God is trying to achieve. He's not trying to simply um, 
he's not certainly not punishing in this case, but he's trying to uh, in, uh, intervene in the, in the course of history to bring a healing solution, to bring people back to a knowledge of him so they can have restoration of right character and live forever with him. That's what he's doing. And so if God is not killing in the Old Testament, not just Egypt, but the flood, all these other places, what is he actually doing? Here's my view. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, as soon as they sinned, could the human race, not just Adam and Eve, but the whole species human, be saved without Jesus? No. no. And so right in Genesis 3, we have the promise. Hey, the seed of the woman's going to crush the servant's test. Right there, God says, hey, even though you, you put human, humanity on this trajectory of eternal death, I will send my son and change that trajectory and, alter an, al- and offer an alternate outcome for all those who partake through my son Jesus. Do you think Satan knows that, that his hold is not secure, that a Messiah is coming? Does he know it? Right there in Genesis. Does he sit back on his recliner and say, hey, I'll just wait and see what happens? Or does he get busy? And is, and is he working to try and stop, if he can, his agenda? Let's stop God. Let's stop his plan. How could he stop the plan of salvation? Strategically, how can he stop it? Stop the way for Christ to come. Would, would God have Jesus born from a woman like Jezebel? No. Would he force a woman against her will? I do not want you, Holy Spirit, coming upon me. Well, that's too bad. I need somebody. You can get it anyway. Or did it require a righteous and voluntary woman to be the mother of Christ? So his, his agenda, let's shut down the avenue, let's get every human heart permanently closed against the Spirit, and then he can't get them back. And at one time in human history, the Bible says there was only one righteous man left on the whole earth. Only one. Think it through. The whole human, the whole world, every heart is closed except one. And God acted to keep open the avenue for the Messiah. We'll come to what happens, and many people look at that, yes, but he punished wicked. No, this wasn't punishment. This was therapeutic intervention to keep open the plan to heal and restore. And Well, yeah, but, but he cut there short. He, they, they don't have an opportunity. Wait, wait till we get to what's going to happen and how it's going to unfold in the end. You're going to be surprised. And there is a service today that is teaching that the blood is God's judgment of the world rather than what I see now. It's an amazing act of grace and compassion for the human race. It's the only way we could have been saved is for the flood. Absolutely. Absolutely. God is beautiful in every one of his acts. Sodom and Gomorrah, same thing. Without Sodom and Gomorrah in the five cities, did Israel still almost not make it through to the Messiah? They still were so corrupted into the fertility cults and all this stuff. They almost, only two of the tribes at the end were able to make it through barely. I think God excised a lesion, if you will, for the, knowing in his wisdom that if those five cities would have stayed, it would have been too much for Israel and Israel would not have made it through. And so he did the, the minimum excision he could do to, to keep open the avenue for Messiah to come. And if you look through human history, since the cross, has the world become much more righteous than it was before? No more Neros, no more Pol Pots, no more Stalins or Hitlers, no more abusive people, none of that stuff going on, right? Do we see God acting that way since the cross? No, because Christ achieved his mission. He doesn't have to do this this way anymore. The, 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 the remedy for, the planet, for, for, for sin has been achieved. The human species has been saved in the person of Jesus Christ. Get your mind around what I'm saying here. Jesus took on humanity, became a real human being. 
And he lived perfectly and developed a perfect character and destroyed those those elements that, that bring death and, and restored life. It says in First Timothy, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Thus, in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a perfect human being, the species human saved in his personhood. Now, the only question is how many other specimens will join him because he offers it freely to you, what he's achieved. So up to it, you can have it and you can live too. But even if no other human being takes him up on it, the race human was saved. What causes death? The actual eternal destruction of the entire being. What causes that? Unremedied sin or an act of God? See, sin is deviation from God's design. And it's incompatible with life when God lets go and stops holding at bay the ultimate results of sin. And uh, and we'll get to it in a minute. It's also a voluntary choice on the part of the wicked in the end to surrender their life. And I will give you the evidence for that in a moment. Does death come from God or from sin? If you have an imposed law construct, if you view God as a Roman dictator and, and that God operates on law no different than human law, then you must believe that God has to use his power to enforce punishment and therefore God must kill. If one understands God's laws, the construction protocols upon which life is built, then one understands that sin deviates from that design and life is not compatible deviant from design, and thus we die from our condition. This is first selected messages 235. History of this particular quote I'm about to give you. Ellen White wrote this when she was in Australia, sent it to Uriah Smith, who was uh, uh, the editor of The Signs. He didn't know what to do with it, so he put it in the files. He didn't publish it. It was found in the 1950s and published in the selected messages. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinners bring the punishment upon themselves. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Notice what's being described here. Yes, I see the hand in the back. It's going to have to wait because I'm in the middle of a thought. Okay? And this is from uh, the same idea. This is from a book called Hard Questions of the Bible, published by InterVarsity Press. This was published in 1996. Now notice what they say. In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of created reality. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for the creation and substituting our own intention, we cause our own disintegration. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth that is, the truth about God's nature and will leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God's intended sexuality, and relational moral brokenness. The expression, God gave them over, or handed them over, which appears three times in the passage, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence, through, though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from its life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. They're exactly right. Exactly right. They understand that God is the creator, the designer, the builder, and deviation from his design is incompatible with life. Okay, question in the back now. So Lisa asked, kind of on the, on the subject, about how does that affect nature? Why do animals have to eat other animals for survival? 
Yes, because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, then all of nature became infected with Satan's methodology and motive, which is fear-based survival of the fittest. Adam and Eve were the uh, vicegerents of Christ representing this earth, and they were, had dominion over the earth, and they were to govern earth on God's law of love, and that was the operating system. As soon as they surrendered their, their um, dominion to Satan, then Satan's principles came and began infecting all of nature. And we see the thorns, thistles, poisons, uh, all these different things are part of the infection of sin, not part of God's design. Even despite that the animals don't have a conscious will to choose. That's correct. That's correct. Because the, the whole nature was designed, it says in um, Romans one twenty that God's eternal power and divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. That nature was created, the world was created as a microcosm, a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men, 1 Corinthians 4.9. And, and Adam and Eve were to govern earth uh, in the same way God governs the entire universe. And so this earth was a microcosm of the entire universe. Adam and Eve representing the Godhead and the other, uh, the other um, lower life forms representing intelligent beings under God's rule. And, and there's so many lessons in that. Why did Adam and Eve not bring in the giraffe and the lion to discuss where they were going to make the plans for the garden? Because they're self-centered or because they didn't have anything to offer? It gives us insight as to why Lucifer is not included in infinity to the Godhead to discuss why God, uh, the plans that God was going to make. So we get lessons in this. And then when they rebelled, nature revealed that the, uh, the animals, which up to that point had been subject to Adam's rule and loved him and would never attack him, and they followed his guidance, were now in rebellion against Adam as, as humanity was in rebellion against God. So it was all part of the lesson book that was woven in. Is there a difference between first death and second death? Yes, first death is an artificial state of being permitted by God's grace to reduce pain and suffering. The natural result of deviating from God's law is eternal non-existence, but God holds this at bay. Romans 3.25, God presented himself, uh, presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, this is NIV version, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Here's my paraphrase. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. Now, through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate he is right and good, because in his forbearance he suspended for a time the ultimate consequences of being out of harmony with how he designed life to exist and has been falsely accused of being unfair. So which death is the wages of sin? Death. Which death? Second, eternal non-existence. Is first death a punishment from God? So remember that when, you're, when somebody starts bringing up God's actions in the Old Testament and saying, look, he punished here, he punished here, he punished here, remember, this is not punishment for sin. This is, this is interventions to keep open the avenue for the Messiah. The second death, is it punishment from God? No, it's the unavoidable result of choosing separation, separating oneself from God and the source of life. Then why, why does second death happen? Because life can't exist separate from God in violation of his design. What makes up a person? What makes up a human being? What are the, uh, the, the component parts, if you will? The, the Bible terms, body, soul, and spirit. Those are the Bible terms. Which are what? Well, let's use a computer metaphor. Hardware and software. There you go, computer metaphor. The body is the hardware. It's the actual um, hard drive, your brain tissue, the things you can physically touch. That's your body. Soul, the Greek word for soul is psyche. It's your individuality, your identity. It is your mind, your, your character. Can I open your brain and touch English? 
So each of us have an English software package. It's not in your DNA. It was uploaded after birth. I can't touch it anywhere, but it's part of the software. Your belief system, your identity, uh, uh, who you love, who you cherish, I can't touch that in your brain anywhere. That's your identity, your character, your personhood. That's your psyche, your software. And a computer also has an energy source. Without an energy source, it doesn't operate. And thus we have pneuma. He breathed into him the breath of life, pneuma, pneumonia, pneumatic tire, the spirit. The spirit enters a man. So we have body, we have individuality, and we have life energy that comes from the breath of God, the spirit of God. What happens to a person, the individual, the person, in the first death experience? The body disintegrates and ceases operations. The individuality, the identity, the psyche is safe and secure with Christ in heaven. There is a backup to your, your, your software. You understand if you have a computer and you have a backup, you back up your, how many back up their hard drive? It's in the clouds. It's in the clouds. There we go. Now, the, hey, he's coming in the clouds, right? Okay. That's how it works. I mean, we, we, we're, we're, these, these, it's metaphorical, but it's also illustrative of reality. Um, the Lamb's Book of Life is not a, a, a lambskin parchment. It's a metaphor for a data storage system in which the individualities and identities, as I read the quote earlier, are safe and secure with Christ in heaven. And then um, the breath of life, the breath energy returns, the spirit returns to God who gave it. What happens to the individual, the person at the second death experience? The body disintegrates and turns to its base elements. Energy returns to God and individuality, psyche, software is eternally erased and gone from existence. They're gone. So listen to Thessalonians talking about the first resurrection. And notice, put these pieces together. It makes it brings together things that many Adventists have struggled with, haven't been able to figure out. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Will bring with him. Those who have fallen asleep. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So will we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Yes, Dean. Wow, thank you so much. I like the explanation that Satan affected all of creation as a result of the entrance of sin because of the terrible choices that Adam and Eve made. Now I can tell this to others when they ask me these questions. God is so wonderful and beautiful. His love is deep. Thank you for this explanation. I'm ready to cry as I love animals. <laughs> so, so the question here, did you hear this? God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. What's he bring? The software, the individuality, their identity, their psyche. He doesn't bring, other than Moses and Enoch and Elijah, they'll come back in their full state of being. And maybe the, the, the ones who were raised at the first resurrection, those first fruits that went to heaven, they'll come already fully restored in their glorified bodies. But the rest of us who die and are in the grave that Paul's talking about who are going to be resurrected, their individualities and identities are safely stored on the heavenly servers. In the clouds of heaven. 
And when he comes back, he brings it and, and he makes a brand new body that comes out of the, the, the uh, matter of this earth, the molecules of this earth. And he downloads the individuality then and, and breathes in the breath of life and boom, we are living eternally. We will have eternal life. We have immortality, a gift of God at that point. So what then, let's move on to the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. What is the purpose of raising the wicked after the thousand years is over only for them to die again? I'm going to suggest to you the purpose primarily is to reveal that when God puts some persons to sleep in human history, his actions in doing so in no way determine their ultimate destiny. And each person is brought back to life to finish their life at, with the exercise of their free will choices. The wicked will be resurrected at the end of the thousand years into imperfect bodies, Revelation 25. At that time, they will have their individualities downloaded from God's record books, heavenly servers, and the servers will be erased. No individuality is backed up or stored any longer. The New Jerusalem is on earth, and a period of time goes by in which the wicked gather to attack the city, Revelation 27 through 9. During this time, notice a period of time goes by. During this time, the gates of the city are open. And when the wicked march upon the city to attack it, then God unveils his full life-giving glory, and the fire comes out from God. So what's the point of all this? To reveal that God, when he put people to sleep, didn't determine their outcome. And even in the future, when they come out of the grave and they have all this evidence of the new Jerusalem and, and the righteous and everything on the earth, they still will not change the course and the tenet of their characters and hearts, and they remain enemies of God and remain outside the city. Not by God shortening their life, but by their free will resistance and rebellion against him. Some people have misunderstood your saying this and feel like you believe they would have when they're resurrected they have they would alter their choice so that even when you're dead you have a chance to sort of change your mind and uh, you know the left behind kind of theory almost yeah that's because they don't understand that um god is simply allowing them to finish their course based on their character and they are so settled into the lie that no amount of truth can have any impact they're so hard-hearted no amount of love has any impact they can't be changed from who they are but yet they still have freedom to finish their course and and let's see why they finish it because i'm going to tell you death does not come out from god death comes from unremedied sin and each in my view you'll find here and i'm going to give you some quotes to show you this that each sinner dies voluntarily they surrender their own life. Now let me, uh, let me read out of Great Controversy, page 662. At the close of the thousand years, Christ again returns to the earth. He is accompanied by the host of the redeemed and attended by the retinue of angels. As he descends in terrific majesty, he bids the wicked dead arise to receive their doom. They come forth, a mighty host, numberless as the sands of the sea. What a contrast to those who were raised in the first resurrection. The righteous were clothed with immortality, youth, and beauty. The wicked bear the traces of disease and death. As the new Jerusalem in its dazzling splendor comes down out of heaven, it rests upon the place purified and made ready to receive it, and Christ with his people and the angels enter the holy city. Now Satan prepares for a last mighty struggle for supremacy. While deprived of his power and cut off from his work of deception, the prince of evil was miserable and dejected. But as the wicked dead are raised and he sees the vast multitudes upon his side, his hope revives. And he determines not to yield the great controversy. He will marshal all the armies under the lost, un, under the, excuse me, all the armies of the lost under the banner, under his banner, and through them endeavor to execute his plan. The wicked are Satan's captives. In rejecting Christ, they have accepted the rule of the rebel leader. They are ready to receive his suggestions and do his bidding. Yet, true to his early cunning, he does not acknowledge himself to be Satan. He claims to be the prince 
who was who is the rightful owner of the world and whose inheritance has been unlawfully wrested from him. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to go on the quote, but I'm going to pause. Unlawfully. Why does he make this claim? Whose position is it that God makes up rules and he has contracts and he makes legislations and he makes laws like humans do? And I can just hear him. He promotes this because he denies God's laws of the design protocols upon life. Can't you just hear him whining? It's not fair. It's not fair. Adam and Eve gave me the right to this property. It's my property. You can't have it. You can't have it. Can't you just hear him whining like this? It's unlawful. It's unlawful. It goes against the rules. But we realize that nature is sustained by connection to its creator and operates on natural law, and thus Satan has no claim and is not unlawfully taken from him because he can't create it, nor can he sustain it. He represents himself to his deluded subjects as a redeemer, assuring them that his power has brought them forth from the graves and that he is about to rescue them from the most cruel tyranny. Again, how is he representing God and Christ? The presence of Christ having been removed, Satan works wonders to support his claims. He makes the weak strong and inspires all with his own spirit and energy. He proposes to lead them against the camp of the saints and to take possession of of God of the city of God with fiendish exaltation he points to the unnumbered millions who have been raised from the dead and declares that as their leader he is well able to overthrow the city and regain his throne and his kingdom pause what method is he promoting here notice the method that satan is promoting force coercion might power to physically overthrow and kill one's opponents think about it Those who value that method, this is our God. So those today, I'm going to suggest to you, who are presenting a God who's going to come back and use his physical might and power to overthrow Satan and kill his enemies are going to be following Satan in doing this because that's their God. Only those who come back to see God's true character, that he doesn't use these methods, are going to be in the city. In, in that vast throng are multitudes of the long-lived race that existed before the flood, men of lofty stature and giant intellect who, yielding to the control of fallen angels, devoted all their skill and knowledge to the exaltation of themselves, men whose wonderful works of art led the world to idol, idolize their genius, but whose cruelty and evil intentions defiling the earth and defacing the image of God caused him to blot them from the face of creation. God took action, as we talked about earlier, to take them off the face of the earth. Yet here they are alive again. And watch what happens. Demonstrating God's actions did not determine their eternal destiny. It was not a punishment for sin. It was an action of mercy. There are kings and generals who conquered nations, valiant men who never lost a battle, proud, ambitious warriors who approach, whose approach made kingdoms tremble. In death, these experienced no change. As they come up from the grave, they resume the current of their thoughts just where it ceased. Again, throw the computer off, leave your computer for a thousand years, come back and flip it back on. It's going to pick up where it was. That's what's happened. It just shut them down, depowered them, powered them down, suspended them in time. They are actuated by the same desire to conquer that ruled when they fell. Satan consults with his angels and then with these kings and conquerors and mighty men. They look upon the strength and numbers on their side and declare that the army within the city is small in comparison with theirs and that it can be overcome. They lay their plans to take possession of the riches and glory of the new Jerusalem. 
All immediately begin to prepare for battle. Skillful artisans construct implements of war. Military leaders famed for their successes marshal the throngs of warlike men into companies and divisions. Notice, I want you to notice, New Jerusalem's on earth, that wicked dead are alive on the earth. And what are they doing? They're building implements of war. There's a period of time that's going by here. Okay? And the New Jerusalem is there. And then the last paragraph. At last the order to advance is given, and the countless hosts move on. An army such as never summoned by earthly conquerors, such, such as the combined forces of all ages since war began on earth could never equal. Satan, the mightiest of warriors, leads the van, and his angels unite their forces for the final struggle. Kings and warriors are in its train, and the multitude follow in vast companies, each under its appointed leader. With military precision, the serried ranks advance over the earth's broken and uneven surface to the city of God. Notice what happens now. By command of Jesus, the gates of the new Jerusalem are closed. And the armies of Satan surround the city to make ready the onset. Get your mind around the implication. The entire time up until this point that the wicked are on earth, the gates of the new Jerusalem are open. What is being revealed by this? And yet not one go through. What is evidence? Why, are they, why won't they come through? Who keeps them out of the city? Themselves. Themselves. They choose to stay out. This is the primary reason for their resurrection. To show beyond a shadow of a doubt there is nothing God could do. Even with the new Jerusalem on earth, with Christ and the saints and the angels in it, they still will not come voluntarily into the city. Yes. It also allows them time to deal with the truth which they have not done. And they're still not doing up until that point. So what happens next after they surround the city? What happens next? Now Christ again appears to the view of his enemies. Far above the city. Upon a foundation of burnished gold. In a throne high and lifted up. Upon the throne sits the Son of God. And around him are the subjects of his kingdom. The power and majesty of Christ. No language can describe. No pen portray. The glory of the eternal fathers enshrouding his Son. And now get this. The brightness of his presence fills the city of God. And flows out beyond the gates. Flooding the whole earth with its radiance. Understand, uh, Understand what this means. Understand, it fills the city of God and flows out. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them, it says in Revelation. Fire comes down from Christ on his throne through the city of God. And are the people in the city of God harmed by that? No, we live forever. This is uh, Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days took a seat and rivers of fire came out from form and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stood in this fire. It is not harmful to those who are restored to righteousness. But what does it do to those whose characters are solidified in wickedness? I'm going to read to you so you understand why the suffering comes, why some will suffer longer, why they ultimately die in the end. This is out of Great Controversies 541. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. He desires that his creatures, the creatures of his hand, shall love him because he is worthy of love. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. Can you have somebody admire you while you're threatening to kill them? This whole idea that's presented in Christianity that justice requires God uses power to torture and kill drives people away from it. It's a lie. Watch the progression of what actually happens. 
The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he had received from his Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept, love your enemies. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. Now that's language, if you just stop there, people take and they use it, but watch the description because she goes on and describes the entire sequence of events now. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. He surrounds them with tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and follows them with offers of mercy, but they despise his love, make void his law, reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know he abhors their sin. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. I wonder who's deciding it. Hmm. He will, then, will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan... Those who have, who's choosing here? Yes, those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those who they despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interest? Last paragraph. Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, the holy state of perfection that ever exists there. Every soul filled in love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join the songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion of God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity would be, its purity, holiness, and peace would be tortured to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Great Controversy 541 and 542. Do you understand what what transpires here? There is no infliction. God is not tormenting. But you can understand now why some will live longer in the fires. Because the more selfish they are, the more they insist and try to hold. And it takes longer for them in that state of, of unveiled glory, the love and truth, which causes them agony and suffering, where they finally quit and say, I don't want to be here. This is miserable. And they each let go. Voluntary with themselves. And they surrender their lives. God does not do this to them. And what do you think God will be doing during this process? Crying. It's going to break his heart. And so, so many times we've seen pictures of him with, with a certain vindictive pleasure. Oh, yeah, you're going to get yours now. 
No, it's not going to be that way at all. It's going to break his heart. And the question is, will God have handled this in such a way that as Jesus is standing on the walls of the New Jerusalem and see his children, the lights going out as they're giving up light, just boom, boom, poof, 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 all over millions of lights going out, millions of his children gone forever, and Jesus has got tears in his eyes that you can walk up to him and say, it's okay, there's nothing more you could have done. Our gracious Heavenly Father, You are truly beautiful and amazing and we know you love us and you are the source of life and goodness and we know that it is your plan to heal and restore. We also know though in this universe and kingdom of freedom that not everybody embraces your methods, your truth, your love. Not everybody wants to be reconciled to you and some will harden their hearts against you and it's it's going to be sad. But it's so good to know that even in the final end and destruction, that it isn't coming out from your hand, that you're not the source of pain and suffering and inflicted death, and that you have done everything in your power for millennia to hold at bay the pain and suffering and destruction that will ultimately come for those who insist on being separate from you. We pray that you will help our minds understand and assimilate this so that we can be effective in representing the truth about your character in this world that so desperately needs it. There's so many living in fear of you that we can help present the truth of your character, love, and win people back to trust. So they may be united to your kingdom and be reconciled to you and be in that city when you come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.